If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. During the ancient age of the Titans, a prophecy from the Sisters of Fate came to the one called Kronos. It was said that of his children, one of them would be his downfall, one of his sons would be his end. So, Kronos began to consume his children. Kronos' wife, Rhea, was disgusted by this. Five of her children were swallowed whole by Kronos, and Rhea could not stand to lose her last child, a baby boy she named Zeus. So when Kronos approached them, Rhea rebelled. She called upon an eagle to take her baby boy away and instead offered to the Titan a rock wrapped in cloth. The lumbering Kronos didn't notice what Rhea offered in the stead of her baby boy Zeus, and he consumed the stone, believing that he averted the calamitous prophecy laid before him. The baby Zeus was taken to Gaia, his grandmother, the mother of Kronos. He was raised within her, as her titan body was a landmass all its own. Gaia blessed Zeus to be mighty, and so when he was full grown, Zeus possessed the power to face down Kronos, whom he so deeply despised. Zeus brought war to the titans by cutting open the belly of his father and freeing his imprisoned siblings within. They were the first of the Olympian gods. The war between the titans and the Olympians sundered and shaped the very earth. For a decade, violence and evil was wrought between them, and neither side was able to gain the upper hand. The titans, Prometheus and Helios, sided with the Olympians against their kin. But even that was not enough to end the war. It seemed that nothing could bring about the end, until Zeus created the Blade of Olympus. This mighty blade turned the tide of battle and delivered to the Olympians a decisive victory. The power of the blade enveloped the field and stole away nearly all the titans, taking them into the deepest pits of Hades, Tartarus, where they would remain imprisoned and punished. Zeus took the throne as king of the gods and an era ruled by the gods of Olympus began. But echoes of the war's evils remained, and presented a tangible threat to Zeus's reign. The evil forces that stalked the world had to be contained, for they threatened to corrupt the gods of Olympus and taint the lands. So the god Hephaestus harnessed the flame of Olympus to create a box, a vessel to contain the evil powers within the world. Just touching the box was lethal, thus it was perfect. Before it was sealed, Zeus's daughter Athena added something into it. She placed hope within. Should the box ever be opened, Athena believed that the hope within it could counter even the evils that it too contained. Should the evils within ever be released and the gods of Olympus corrupted, then perhaps hope would arise to see the day saved. At least, she hoped it would. Hephaestus made a key to the box, something that could tame the flames of Olympus. And the key was made into the form of a girl that Hephaestus named Pandora. Hephaestus wanted to protect Pandora from Zeus, so he convinced Zeus to put Pandora's box within a temple built on the back of the defeated titan Kronos. The titan was forced to roam the desert of lost souls evermore in eternal punishment and agony, carrying the potential doom of the gods upon his back. It might be surprising, but there was a lot of inbreeding amongst the gods. Zeus took his sister Hera to be his wife. He had relations with other family members, those family members had relations with other family members, inbred babies were born who had relations with other family members, and on and on. But it wasn't all mother-loving in Olympus. The gods also took mortal lovers. A Spartan woman named Callisto became one of Zeus's many lovers. From this liaison came two sons. The first of the boys was named Kratos. Zeus's sister wife Hera was enraged at the birth of this bastard child, and she demanded that Zeus kill the baby. But the king of the gods refused. He allowed the child to live and went on to father another child, Callisto. 
The second was named Demos. The child bore upon his body birthmarks that curled around his chest, arm, and head. Kratos proved to be aggressive and domineering, while Demos was smaller and more gentle. In Spartan society, war and strife was everything. The youth of Sparta were taught from a young age how to handle a weapon and how to fight. Kratos was admirable in that regard. He and Demos would spar and test one another. Often this resulted in Kratos beating up his younger brother and screaming at him about how a Spartan should be. But despite his aggression, Kratos was close to his brother. Spartan children deemed unworthy of training as a soldier were sent into the mountains to face a lonely death. Kratos perhaps was looking out for Demos in this regard, toughening him up, preparing him for the future, safeguarding him a spot in Spartan society. Because their father was Zeus, the two boys were demigods, though they were raised as mortals. Intrinsically, they were extremely powerful, with abilities far exceeding those of their peers. But those strengths never rose to the surface. They were maintained, kept as normal human boys. But another prophecy came, this time to Zeus. It was a prophecy very similar to the one his titan father, Kronos, received so long ago. Zeus was told that the downfall of Olympus would come at the hands of a marked warrior. So, he dispatched two of his children, Ares and Athena, to find this marked one. Eventually, Ares and Athena went to Sparta and they found Demos, who bore birthmarks all about his torso and face. They believed him to be the one of the prophecy, so they attacked Sparta and hunted Demos down. When Ares took the boy, his brother Kratos tried to attack the god of war. A brave act, but a vain one. Ares struck the boy, delivering a wound to his face that would leave a deep scar. Though Ares wished to further punish Kratos for his insolence, Athena directed her brother away from the Spartan child. They had what they were ordered to find. They would leave this other boy alone. Ares and Athena saw Demos delivered to the hands of Thanatos, the god of death. He would be hidden away within the domain of death and tortured for all his life. Demos believed that Kratos would come to save him, but as time wore on, that faith turned into a hatred for his brother. Demos believed Kratos had abandoned him to this terrible fate, and it festered into loathing. Kratos went on to live an ideal Spartan life. He excelled as a warrior, and he quickly rose to the ranks of the Spartan army. To honor his brother, he tattooed his body with the designs of Demos's birthmarks. When Kratos came of age, he married a woman named Lysandra, whom he loved dearly and he respected. The two eventually had a daughter they named Calliope. When Calliope was born, a plague was sent to Sparta by Ares to afflict her. Unbeknownst to those involved, the gods of Olympus had a wager with one another, each one picking a champion to race for the Ambrosia of Asclepius. The Ambrosia could heal mortals of any ailment. Some even believed that it could grant immortality. The six champions the gods selected were each given a terrible reason to pursue it. Generally, the people they loved were stricken with a terrible illness. For Kratos, it was his baby daughter. And he went through hell and high water to pursue the Ambrosia, killing each of the other gods' champions as he went, commanding a small army of Spartans throughout. In the end, only Kratos and the barbarian prince Auric remained to fight over the Ambrosia. It was Kratos who took victory, returning to Sparta alone to deliver the healing Ambrosia to his daughter. For doing this, Kratos was promoted to captain of the army. He did not know that Ares, the god of war, was the cause of his trial and pain, nor did he know that his feats during the journey had quite caught the eye of the god of war. The name Kratos would be well known to Ares. But Auric, who was the champion of Hades, was not allowed a quick death. Hades restored him to life, and when Ulrich returned to his home, he found that his father had died from the pox placed upon him. Ulrich swore that he would take vengeance upon the Spartan called Kratos, and as the new barbarian king, Ulrich began to prepare for conquest. 
And this was the way of Kratos, to Sparta, to his family he was devoted. He was unstoppable, he would do anything for them, but to those that he encountered, he was villainous, an unstoppable, unreasoning force that would destroy anything to accomplish his own selfish goals. As the years ticked by, Kratos became an effective and brutal leader. Much of his life would be spent traveling for war, bringing violence to the corners of the lands in the names of Sparta. His wife, Lysandra, was wholly unafraid of Kratos and questioned him as to his methods and his motives. She was a balance to his pride and his ego, though they were only together for those brief times that he was able to return to Sparta. Though he loved his wife and his daughter, he carried on his own life away from them. His bloodlust caught up to him eventually. Kratos led his army east into the lands of the Barbarians. There, his forces clashed with those of the Barbarian King Ulrich. Long had Ulrich sworn vengeance against Kratos, and now he led a force far larger than that of the Spartan army. The Barbarians fell upon the Spartans with rage and vigor. They overpowered them, they outnumbered them, and they were on home turf. They had every advantage. Kratos had made a grave mistake in bringing his army here, and none would escape the horde. His men were slaughtered all around him, and Kratos was brought down for a death blow at the hands of Ulrich himself. But before death could come to him, Kratos called out to the god of war, Ares. He vowed that if Ares should intervene and slay his enemies, that his life would belong to the god of war. And Ares accepted. The Olympian descended upon the field, and he killed the barbarian horde, bringing salvation to those few Spartans that remained. And to Kratos, he brought a very special gift, the Blades of Chaos. They were permanently grafted onto his arms to serve as symbols of his servitude to Ares. Wielding his new weapons, Kratos killed Ulrich and took victory over the field. From then on, Kratos did not just conquer in the name of Sparta. He destroyed and murdered in service to Ares. Kratos was already a monstrous man, but empowered and under the control of the god of war, he became an animal, blinded by rage and bloodlust. And with each victory achieved under the banner of his new master, Kratos became more wild and uncontrollable. This eventually took him to a village that served Athena. It was not a warring place, the center of it was a holy site, but Ares held disdain for his sister Athena. Kratos called it an affront to their lord, one that would be cold. So when Kratos and an army of Sparta arrived, there was no glory to be had in combat, it was a slaughter. Kratos was emboldened by Ares, and his men were emboldened by him. They were savage and blind to what a terrible deed they were carrying out. But at the heart of the village, before the temple of Athena, Kratos felt something, an ill omen, a feeling that he should never enter this site, never step inside of it. It was a forbidden thing to do, he should turn away from it. An oracle met Kratos here, warning him that the dangers within were greater than he realized, but Kratos ignored the small woman and he pushed on. He ignored the feeling in his gut, his ambitions were just too great, and he deigned that all within the temple would die at his own hand. He began hunting the innocents within, shedding blood in the holy place. But Kratos didn't know that he had been betrayed. The pain that he'd brought upon so many would be turned back upon himself and it would be by his own wretched hands. Ares, the god of war, took Kratos' wife and child, Lysandra and Calliope, to that very temple. His final victims would be his family. He killed them in that small temple of Athena. Ares wished to force Kratos to shed all of his earthly ties, to make him a more effective servant and a loyal attack dog. But in forcing him to murder his wife and child, Ares instilled a new rage and horror within Kratos. 
a festering indignation that the god of war would take from him that which he most valued. That day, Kratos decided he would no longer serve Ares. He would hunt the god of war down, and all who got in his way would face wrath. The oracle that Kratos disregarded cast a curse upon him. For all his days, the ashes of his wife and daughter would cling to him, a reminder of his great sin that all would see and know. His old life was over. Kratos would be known as the Ghost of Sparta, and his only calling would be to murder the god of war. Those who broke their oaths to the gods were truly pitiable. Not because of forsaken honor, no. The Furies. To be an oathbreaker would garner the ire of the sisters called the Furies, primordial beings that were bound to none. They guarded honor, dished punishment, and hunted those deemed traitors. They held power over the Titans, the gods of Olympus, and all mortals. Pity those who are hunted by the Furies, for death will not come to them. Torment will. Death was too sweet a fate for those the Furies deemed to be oathbreakers. But eventually, the purity of their judgment was changed when Ares began to exert control over them. Ares and the Fury Queen conceived a child called Orcos that Ares deemed unworthy of his attention. Ares cast the child aside, but Orcos stayed with his mothers, the Furies, as an oathkeeper. Ares had wished to use this child as a tool to overthrow his brethren in Olympus, but after the perceived failure of Orcos, Ares intended to use Kratos to this end. But the Furies remained in compliance with Ares, and thus they became unjust and bloodthirsty. So, when Kratos abandoned his service to Ares to instead hunt the god of war, he drew their attention. The maddened man was swiftly found by them and taken prisoner, tortured for time unknown, in order to return him to Ares' service. Parts of his memory were taken or lost. He had trouble remembering where he was and why he was there. He awakens in the presence of the Fury named Megira, not recalling that the two have recently come to blows. Her missing arm is a testament to their violent forays. The Furies have been using illusions and lies to break Kratos down, make him weak and malleable, but the man has proven to be quite stubborn in his rage, and their attempts to manipulate him and break him have been met with violent outbursts. And it's no different here. Megira's hatred towards Kratos is met with equal force. When she brings him punishment, he breaks his bonds to return it upon her. Even without his memory, this is what will fuel Kratos in his long journey to come. Unreasoning rage. Not even the prison of the damned can hold the Spartan. Megira stays ahead of him, sending parasites to slow his rampage through the prison, taunting him with jealous words about the foolishness of Ares for choosing Kratos to be his champion. When Kratos proves that he cannot be detained and held by normal means, Megira uses her parasites to infect the arm of the titan Aegean the Hecatonchores, whose very body acts as part of the prison. Aegean betrayed a blood oath made to Zeus after the war with the Titans and became a prisoner to the Furies as an example to what happens to those who forsake their vows to the gods. But this parasitic infection is but a minor obstacle to Kratos. He pushes on, forcing the Titan and its commanding Fury to break apart sections of the prison to find him. While Megira delights in the physical pain of others, her sister Tisiphone practices a more devious art. She creates an illusion, women to seduce and subdue Kratos. Though he loved his wife, he was far from faithful to her. This was one of his vices, laying with other women. But seeing a ring upon the finger of one cues Kratos into the deception. It's the ring his wife wore, and this woman is not his Lysandra. After breaking Tisiphone's illusion, Megira comes to her sister's aid, intercepting Kratos for one-on-one -on -one combat. This was her doom, however. Not even using the parasite-infested body of the titan Aegean could stop him. 
The corrupted Fury could not defeat the powerful Spartan. Megira dies in the prison of the damned, and upon her demise, Kratos takes from her body a strange amulet. And he begins to remember. Come to find out, Kratos first encountered the Furies three weeks past. He was taken into an illusion, completely oblivious to it, left to think over the death of his wife and child at his own hands, having only Lysandra's necklace and ring to keep him company. It wasn't until Orcos appeared that Kratos began to understand his new plight. The son of Ares and the Fury Queen had begun to doubt the Furies, whom he called his mothers. He instead sought to aid Kratos, as the judgment of the Furies was tainted and Orcos felt pity for the Spartan warrior. Orcos would not see injustice done upon him. The guidance of Orcos and Lysandra's jewelry helped Kratos remain grounded enough to break through the illusion, though his hesitation in that moment speaks volumes to the loss that he felt. If only he could stay in that place forever, but no, he cannot. Orcos promised to the stubborn man that he would help him navigate through the Furies, to break his bond with Ares. Even when Kratos was being obstinate and difficult, Orcos was kind and helpful. He told Kratos to seek the Oracle at Delphi, a long journey that Kratos made with little hesitation. High atop the Oracle's tower in Delphi, mythical creatures guarded where she was held. The journey there was nigh impossible for the common man. Dead bodies were strewn about the path, but Kratos was far from the common man, even at this point. He beat the ascent, and within the Oracle's tower he found Castor and Pollux. The decrepit twins wished to usurp the Oracle's control over time by taking her amulet of Ouroboros and controlling every aspect of the temple. Many died after Castor and Pollux took power. The temple became a perversion of itself. When Kratos arrived having no offering to give, they quite took issue with him. The conjoined twins would do anything to retain their power here, even tear the temple apart down to its very foundation. The Oracle, a woman named Aletheia, had long been held hostage here. Her amulet of Ouroboros taken away, she was terrorized, kept hidden, and lingering at death's door. Kratos killed the twins and took from them the Oracle's amulet. The Oracle Aletheia was not far away. She had suffered greatly at the hands of Castor and Pollux. Kratos tried to use her amulet to undo the damage done to her body, but the woman was very to the point in her directions. He couldn't save her. The amulet had no effect on her. Aletheia felt the illusions clouding his mind, the pain of his deeds past, but before continuing, she first asked Kratos if he wished to seek the truth. It was a choice that he had to make, but Kratos didn't hesitate. He had to know the truth of what was happening, so Aletheia showed him. She reminded him the Furies were in pursuit because he'd betrayed his oath to Ares. Orcos, the son of Ares and the Fury Queen, was pure of intent and wished to help him. With her death drawing in, Aletheia tells him that, for the madness of his mind to be cured, he must defeat those that hold him to his bond to Ares. He must kill the Furies. Across the sea he must go to find the Lantern of Delos that holds the eyes of truth so that he might see through their illusions and find freedom. Orcos awaited him at the docks to ensure that the Spartan knew that he was there to aid them, but he also alluded to a deeper conspiracy, something that Kratos did not yet know about himself. Why Ares chose him why Kratos was needed by the god of war. He would be the perfect warrior for Ares, the one who would take down the walls of Olympus in his name. This was a power grab, and Kratos was a pawn in this game. Kratos remembers now. Back in the present, still within the prison of the damned, Kratos knows what to do. He resumes his prison break, but the still remaining Furies try their tricks on him to subdue him once again. Next is an illusion of the Spartan king, using grandiose words and praise to placate him. 
He lets it go on for a while, but Kratos is well onto the schemes of the Furies now. A swift kick to the supposed Spartan King knocks Tisiphone out of her illusion, forcing her to flee into the prison. When he finds her at the head of Iagia and the Hecatonchores, she abandons her illusions and sends Kratos her pet bird, Diamond. From the beast's chest, he takes a stone, but what could this be? Tisiphone once again flees, she's not yet ready to confront the warrior head-on, and Kratos recalls a bit more of what happened before he came to the Prison of the Damned. He'd gone to an island called Delos Landing to search out the Lantern of Delos that the Oracle had told him about before she died at Delphi. There was a massive statue to Apollo there, a ridiculously sized statue, actually. Though it's long been in decline, it still holds a massive lantern. Within that lantern must be the eyes of truth that he needs. During his climb, the Furies found Kratos there and played their games of illusions and violence against him. It was here that Megira lost her arm to Kratos. Tisiphone intervened to save her sister, but the two Furies could not overpower him. After a long fought battle, he took the upper hand. It was by her own illusion magics that Tisiphone's life was saved. Kratos focused on impaling an illusion rather than the real thing. It bought time for the Fury Queen to arrive, Electo. Once consort of Ares and the birth mother to Orcos, Kratos cannot escape this. Electo is far too powerful for him to contend with. It was Orcos himself who brought deliverance. In blatant disobedience to his mothers, Orcos bravely took Kratos away from the Furies, and in their brief safety, Orcos gave Kratos that strange stone, the very thing that kicked up this memory. It is the Oath Stone of Orcos. It will briefly allow Kratos to exist in two places at once, in aid in obstacles and in combat to come. Orcos' fate became bound to Kratos once the Furies knew of his betrayal. Reaching the Lantern requires restoring the statue of Apollo, but eventually Kratos does reach it. And there Orcos reveals to Kratos what the Oracle had told him. The God of War and the Furies would bring down Olympus. The Oracle and Orcos tried to warn Zeus of Ares' treachery, but the Furies caught onto their plot and intercepted them. The Oracle's eyes were ripped out and she was imprisoned. The eyes of truth were Aletheia's eyes. With their meddling ended, Ares and the Furies' plot would remain hidden. Ares intended to use Kratos as a tool in his arsenal when the time came to attack Olympus. When Kratos betrayed his oath to Ares after the murder of his family, it presented another complication in their plan. Kratos had to return to Ares' service, and the Furies would stop at nothing to see it done. When finally he saw undone the mechanisms holding the eyes away, the Furies reappeared. Orcos could not reach Kratos in time to warn him. This time there would be no salvation from Electo. Kratos was taken to the prison of the damned. Now he remembers all, and Kratos knows the power of the Furies. He does not back down. To reach Ares will require killing them, and their citadel lay just ahead. Upon entering it, one of the Furies immediately begins her cruel games of illusions. Kratos is made to walk his home in Sparta, on a quiet, peaceful night where nothing in the world seems amiss. His little girl is resting peacefully in her bed, and his Lysandra greets him, leading him to the bed. It was the life that he had once, before his terrible crusades and his bargain with Ares. When he chose violence and war over his family, it was the life that he abandoned. And he can never go back to it, no matter how sorrowful he is, it was a choice that can't be undone. When he sees the ring on Lysandra's finger, he remembers. The illusion shatters, revealing the Fury Queen to be the instigator this time, and she almost had him. With time, she could break him. While it might not be real, she can give him back something he lost. He can relive what he had with his family, have a reprieve from the world. Losing his family was the hard part, but it's done. And if he complies with the Furies and Ares, he can still have glory and a part of his past. But the falsehood of it is something that he will not accept. 
Kratos is a creature of anger. His ambition cannot be reasoned with, and he will not stray from his path. He will kill the Furies and then continue his hunt for the God of War. Tisiphone will change the very landscape, taking Kratos from the Furies' chambers to what appears to be a maelstrom in the ocean. Electo becomes a monstrous being that will cut through the seas to fight the Spartan. Tisiphone throws her every manipulative illusion and power at Kratos. But like Megara, she cannot stop him. He dives into the darkness of the ocean to confront the Fury Queen in her greatest form, without an ounce of fear to show for it. But he cannot remain in the depths forever, his breath will not hold. Kratos draws Electo out of the waters for the final confrontation. Tisiphone joins to try and aid her sister in overcoming the Spartan, but even with the two of them, they are not enough. Kratos ends the illusion by killing the beast of Tisiphone, and then she herself will be the second of the Furies to die. She uses every illusion she can bring forth to try and stop him, but he snaps her neck and then moves on to the queen. Electo's death is far quicker. Two blades to the chest. With her death, what remains standing of the chambers begins to crumble away. But there is still yet one fury who remains. Orcos, the son of Electo and Ares, who's been Kratos' steadfast guide and who's bravely saved his life. Orcos saw Kratos taken away from the crumbling prison and returned to his house in Sparta. The two men lock arms as friends. This is a happy reunion for the two. But happy moments are to be a fleeting thing for Kratos. Orcos reveals that killing the Furies did not sever his oath bond to Ares. Kratos was still bound to serve him. The Furies had forced Orcos to keep safe that oath with his very body. For Kratos to be freed of his bond to Ares, he would have to kill Orcos as well. And if he doesn't, Ares will forever hold power over Kratos. And Orcos will be fated to a miserable, tortuous fate. He asks Kratos to kill him, to spare them both that terrible fate. Kratos has lost everything because of his own ambition and cruelty. Finding a friend like Orcos would be difficult in the best of times, but to be told that he must now kill the Fury is a pure challenge for Kratos. It's unfair and it's painful, but it cannot be bargained with. So Kratos does as he has to, and he gives to Orcos an honorable death. With his passing, the memories of what Kratos did to his family rush back with full, vivid clarity. If any detail were lost, if any pain forgotten, it was completely restored in that moment. These were the visions that would haunt him for all the rest of his life, not the illusions of the Furies, his own memories. Kratos set his old home ablaze. He hardened his heart and resumed his hunt for the God of War. For ten years, Kratos served the gods. It took him into foreign lands, into great fights with terrible creatures, into Hades itself. He saved the god of the sun Helios and restored light to the world. He was tormented by the visage of his daughter. He even walked the fields of Elysium for a short time with her at his side, before forsaking paradise to end the threat of the queen of the underworld. He became an uncaring, indifferent savior to mankind, as well as a terror upon it. At the end of the decade, after a particularly harrowing fight against a vicious Hydra, Kratos sat within a sea vessel during a storm and he relived the horrors of his past. Over the years, he'd become even more reckless and unconcerned with his own life. He threw himself into battles and challenges that almost promised him death, yet he could never quite seem to greet it. He was always delivered from it or narrowly avoided it. The goddess Athena in particular was a bit of a shield against his death wish. During the storm at sea, Kratos went to a statue of Athena on board the ship and told her that he was tired of serving Olympus. For ten long years, he'd been tormented by the gods and he demanded to know when his suffering would finally end. Athena answered, telling him that there was one more task for him. 
he must go to Athens, where the god of war, Ares, is laying siege to the city. Go there and kill Ares. The gods are forbidden from waging war against one another directly. With Kratos no longer bound to Ares, Athena will use him to her own ends. Athena promised that if he does this, then he will be forgiven of his past deeds. Though what Kratos wants is an end to the memories that so haunt him, he agrees to Athena's offer without pushing his own agenda. So, straight to the gates of Athens he goes. And there he finds the many fiends of Ares waging war against the citizens of the city. Some of the gods of Olympus will aid Kratos as he progresses, but they cannot directly intervene on his behalf. Within the broken city, the Oracle of Athens appears to him. She and her nipples ask Kratos to find her, to save her from her captors, and she'll aid him in his journey if he does. Since he has no other direction or a compass, he agrees. The battlefield before the city comes into view, revealing that Ares himself is a part of the war. This is a forbidden thing of the gods. It's no wonder that they want him dead. For years, the god of war has plotted against his kin, but now he's brazen in his aggression. The city oracle is his goal, though, not the lumbering god of war in the distance, and she is indeed endangered. There's not a lot that she can do against a pack of harpies. Before the oracle's temple, they take her away. This is turning into a bit of a chase around the city. Good thing Kratos is so patient and understanding with these things. Before the temple steps, an odd character appears, a gravedigger, who cackles at him, references the goddess Athena, and speaks to Kratos as though he knows all about him. The grave he digs is for Kratos himself, he says. Everything will make sense in time, and when all seems lost, it is he that will appear to help Kratos. But he's not really comforting about this promise. It's a very odd interaction to have, and Kratos just moves on from the weird fellow. The harpies that stole away the oracle drop her in the town square of Athens. Once she is secured, the oracle touches Kratos and sees the sort of man that he truly is. She sees his life as a Spartan war leader, the conquests that he led, the violence he brought against innocents, and the murder of his own family. She rightfully calls him a monster and asks why the gods would bring a man like him to Athens, but she will not interfere with the will of the gods. The oracle guides Kratos to Pandora's box, the only thing in the world that can kill a god. He will find it far to the east on the back of the titan Kronos, the father of Zeus. Within Pandora's temple is that which he needs to kill Ares. Well, no time to waste then. It's time to travel to the desert of lost souls. Athena warns Kratos before he embarks across the desert that he will only find his way to Pandora's temple by following the song of the sirens through the raging sandstorms. Follow their melody, kill the sirens, and the way forward will be open to him. Each death acts as a key to a door barring his way forward. Killing the three sirens opens the door leading to a great horn. It parts the sandstorm and takes him to an overlook where the titan Kronos can be seen crawling across the desert with his punishment upon his back. The father of Zeus who tried to avoid his own downfall by consuming each of his children. It was by the grace of his mother that Zeus's life was saved, and that he was able to return in adulthood to wage war on the Titans. After the Titans were defeated, Kronos was forced to carry Pandora's temple upon his back throughout the desert of lost souls for all time. The second horn summons the Titan. The massive being is uncaring as to who summoned him, and is indifferent to Kratos climbing on his body to reach the temple on his back. Kratos spends three days climbing the sheer wall of rock preceding the temple, but he makes it to the top before the gates, and there he meets another odd character, the temple gatekeeper tending to a pyre. In life, he was the first to attempt infiltrating the temple, but the many dangers of the temple were his end. As punishment for his hubris, he was tasked with eternally tending to the gates, 
allowing entry to all who make it this far. And when inevitably they fail, the harpies around the temple bring the corpses back to him for burning. And to him, Kratos is no different from every other greedy soul that's come before him. He lets him into the temple without much of a fuss. Pandora's temple is a complete death trap. No mortal has ever made it through these halls, and it makes sense as to why. The goddess Artemis intervenes to empower him with a weapon to aid him through the massive temple. There are corpses strewn all about the halls, reminding him of his own violent past, and those that still yet live are more akin to dead men walking. There are artifacts from the gods hidden about that Kratos must use to make his way through the otherwise impassable gauntlets. And if those don't kill every single mortal that enters the temple, then the forces of Hades will, without fail. But for Kratos, each situation and trial can be met with a tool or a skill that he possesses, things that give him the upper hand in the temple. Even the god of the underworld himself grants Kratos a boon for his success in the temple. And as he ascends, memories continue to taunt him. But when the visions and memories are at their worst, Kratos doesn't give in to despair. He doubles down on his hatred for Ares. He uses that as his fuel to continue on. Onwards he goes through a maze, to the architect's tomb, past another round of traps and ambushes, each more perilous than the last, until finally he reaches it. The Pandora's Box. He's the first to have ever reached it, and he's mortal. Athena appears to him at his journey's end, joyous at his success. She asks him to please bring the box back to Athens so that they can stop Ares and save her people. Dragging the box out of the temple, his only thought is on killing Ares, not of saving the city or its people. But little did Kratos know that Ares was well aware of his success. Somehow, Ares could sense that Kratos had Pandora's box, and he would not allow the Spartan to loose its power upon him. So, in a show of dazzling might, Ares threw a pillar far across the land and impaled Kratos with it one hell of a throw. As the once great Spartan general dies at the gates of the temple, his thoughts turn to his family the day that he murdered them. He would never be freed of that memory. Every aspect of it will haunt him. When he made his deal with Ares to be his servant in exchange for victory in battle, he was sacrificing his autonomy and choice to the god of war. Kratos played with fire and he got burned. Kratos was fine murdering and victimizing until it became personal, until it was he that suffered. Kratos is far from honorable, far from blameless, but at least he acknowledges what keeps him going, revenge. When the box is taken by the servants of Ares and Kratos begins to fade, it is Hades that calls to his foul spirit. Kratos falls into the depths meant for the damned, but his indomitable rage will not allow him to take this defeat. Before hitting bottom, Kratos catches a ledge and begins to climb out of hell. He'll use anything and anyone to aid in his climb. The damned can stay here, he has no intention to. Pandora's temple was built to keep people out. Hades was built to keep people in. And it's enragingly effective at stopping anyone's progress. It's a long, arduous trip that doesn't seem to lead anywhere. As soon as one obstacle is overcome, there's yet another standing in his way. A befitting eternal torment, one could say. After long venture, a rope anchor drops before him, a way up, leading back into the city of Athens, where that grave digger stands waiting. He had said that the grave was meant for him. It was just an unusual way to play out his intentions, a literal path out of hell. This grave digger is far more than he seems, of course. He knows more than any mortal could know of what's taking place. He tells Kratos that he needs to hurry on, complete his mission, and then the gods will forgive him. The Spartan never questioned Athena's vague promise. 
He wanted his terrible memories to leave him to be freed of what he did with his own hands to his family. But the gods never promised that. Kratos just continued on in blind faith of his own request. Beyond the Gravedigger's sight, the city is in deep decline. The minions of Ares are all about the area. Even the Oracle herself is at death's door, another victim in the mindless violence. Within the valley where Kratos not so long ago witnessed a terrible battle taking place, Ares stands in supposed triumph, calling out to his father Zeus. All this over petty jealousy. Zeus's favor went to his daughter Athena, not to Ares. And in a god-level temper tantrum, he decided to wreck Athena's city to show how deserving he was of Zeus's attention. He even uses his possession of Pandora's box as proof of his superiority, and asks of Zeus if he would have him use the box against Olympus to prove how mighty he is, what an insufferable sniveling little bitch boy. Kratos winds up a throw with a lightning bolt from Zeus and he breaks the chain holding the box. Now finally, he can open it, and the power of a god floods into his body, bringing him up one-to-one -one against Ares. Though he's mortal, he's well prepared. The two have their petty words for one another with plenty of self-aggrandizing, both intent on being the bigger monster, the more frightening threat, the bigger man. Finally, the two have at one another. Before the city of Athens, the two god-sized figures have their battle that's been 10 years in the making. Even with his intrinsic advantages, Ares cannot overpower the Spartan. They hit, grapple, toss, and scream in the bay. It is Kratos that takes the upper hand over the god of war, bringing into question just how deserving Ares is of that title. But he does not hold the benefit and power of a god. Ares pulls Kratos into an illusion, to the temple where he killed his family so long ago. And Kratos knows precisely where it is. It makes him question if all of this is even real if what he remembers is about to happen all over again. In a cruel game to break the man, Ares makes him fight to protect his wife and daughter as his forces descend upon them. Exact copies of himself creep closer to them, like wild beasts stalking easy prey. Kratos fights for them until the walls of the temple fall away, killing every visage of himself that draws upon his wife and daughter. When finally the waves cease, Ares reminds Kratos of his own actions and the deal that he made with the god of war. Though Kratos may hate Ares with a murderous rage, he too is to blame for what took place in that temple. And Kratos can never have them back. He can never undo what he did. And because Kratos rejected Ares, the god strips from him the blades of chaos and kills Lysandra and Calliope in front of him. Back in the field, Kratos is stalled for a moment from the shock of losing his family again. Ares has all the time he could need to deliver the killing blow but loses the opportunity in favor of taunting and jeering at Kratos. It gives the Spartan time to retrieve a massive sword from a nearby statue of Athena. Once more they fight, but with the many blessings of the gods to bolster him, it is the Spartan Kratos that takes victory. No amount of self-defending will spare Ares from Kratos now. The justifications of each don't matter. A mortal man kills the god of war before the city of Athens. Before the broken city, Kratos sits and he waits. He's expectant that the gods will do as he asked in return for his ventures, that they will rid him of his memories. In another vision, he stands before Athena and he begs of her to take away that which is so terrible, and she reiterates their bargain. If Kratos killed Ares, the gods would forgive him of his deeds. They would comply with this, but his actions in life were too horrific for any man or god to forget them. They would not cleanse him of it. Kratos was doomed to carry it with him for all the rest of his life. In sorrow, Kratos climbed the bluffs overlooking the Aegean Sea. He ascended the highest mountain in the lands. And atop it, he spoke to his pain for a brief moment. 
and then he cast himself from the mountain. If the gods would not give him peace, then he would seek it in death. But Kratos was not allowed this. He was pulled from the waves and taken into the heavens. Placed upon solid ground, the goddess Athena met him and said to Kratos that one such as he would not be allowed to take his own life. There is now an empty throne within Olympus, and for the acts of service Kratos performed for the gods, Athena tells him that he will be rewarded. She offers to Kratos an ascension, to be the new god of war. And Kratos accepts. He passes through the portal beside Athena, and he enters his new home within Mount Olympus. This will be his palace, and within it, his throne. From here, all who wrought violence and conflict would do so in his name and in his honor, the man who had defeated a god and usurped his place. But godhood would not alleviate the pain of his mortal life. His brother Demas lost, his mother left alone, his wife and child dead, the countless murdered cursed his name in Hades. Eventually, his visions would spur him into action once again. Still yet a pawn in the games of Olympus, he knew. But it was a call that he could not ignore. Kratos would depart Olympus soon. His ventures would begin anew, and this time he'd bring with him the power of a god. 